what do they say? Third time's a charm. More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachit, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I am so excited to bring you today's episode with one of my favorite authors, Jerry Colonna. So Jerry Colonna is the author and the CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, which is an executive coaching and leadership development firm whose coaches and facilitators are committed to the notion that better humans make better leaders. For nearly 20 years, he's used his knowledge gained as an investor, executive, and a board member of more than 100 organizations to help entrepreneurs and others to lead with humanity, resilience, and equanimity. Before his career as a coach, he was a partner with J.P. Morgan Partners, the private equity arm of J.P. Morgan Chase. He joined JPMP from Flatiron Partners, which he launched in 1996 with his partner, Fred Wilson. And they both are known, uh, or Flatiron was known as legendary investors. It became one of the most successful early stage investment programs in New York, and he lives in Boulder, Colorado. So Jerry's book, Reboot, is probably one of my favorite books that I've read in the last three to five years. It's probably the only one of the few books that I've read both on audiobook and, or read in paper and listen to an audiobook more than five times. And in this episode, you really get to see the power of a brilliant coach and mentor. I started the interview with sort of a plan in mind, and you'll see that within 10 minutes, it, it sort of takes a different turn. And you'll see me getting flustered. And towards the end, I think on my last question, I kind of actually get schooled a bit from Jerry. And really, I think this interview just shows the power of how much time he spent learning in his craft and just the power of an executive coach. So here's Jerry. Jerry, welcome and thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. It's, it's a delight to see you and be with you this morning. I shared this with you over email um, and I want to just do this before I forget, which is we're going to talk a lot about the book Reboot. It is probably one of my favorite books I've read, I think in the last Three years? Only the last three years. It should be your whole <laughs> life. No, just kidding. I actually, one of my friends, um, I recommended, I was coaching him and I recommended the book to him. And mm -hmm. his message to, to me was, reboot, rip my guts out. I'm now putting ah. it back together. So just first of all, I wanted to start by thanking you for creating that. And um, it's been super helpful for me in my journey. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I didn't intend to rip people's guts out. But I did intend a little bit of ass kicking, so. Nothing yeah. did that. So we're recording this in April, and I've emailed you about sort of like what, what are topics you could explore. And obviously, we're recording this during the coronavirus pandemic. So I just, just want to start with sort of like, one, like how you're feeling with it or dealing with it and, and how you're thinking about it. Because it almost like for me, reminds me of the way you talk about 9-11 and the book and, and the impact it had on you. And in some ways... What we're dealing with is almost like a 9-11 a every day or close to it in terms of the debt tolls and everything. That's well put. 
So, so yeah, I just wanted to start with how are you sort of feeling and thinking about it? And maybe we can share the context of how you dealt with 9-11 and all of that. Sure. Well, I think your analogy is, is right, but obviously falls short in some ways. One of the things that I've been saying quite frequently in the last few weeks is really never in my life. I've often used the phrase humanity in my life, but never in my life have I used that phrase without hyperbole. And today, when we speak about the pandemic and the economic impact, as well as the emotional, existential, physiological, physical impact, we are truly talking about humanity. And so much of our life, we extrapolate our own individual experience into, well, this is what humans do. But the truth is that we tend to be distant from the conscious understanding of what actually is happening on a, on a global basis. And the result is that we are all, myself included, living with this, what I would believe to be this sort of dual state of individual anxiety and a kind of collective anxiety. And I think that there are some real benefits to that experience, but of course, it's overshadowed right now, appropriately so, by the overwhelming grief and fear and sadness and confusion and uncertainty that I think most people are experiencing. I can say more if it's helpful about what I've been doing about it, but I'll just sort of leave that there for now. No, I think that would be super helpful. Well, if you think about that experience, one of the profound teachings that, is, that I have been sitting with is the, there's a story told of a woman who has lost her child and she goes to the Buddha for comfort in the midst of her overwhelming grief. And the Buddha says to her that he gives her the instruction to visit every home in the village and to take from each home that has not experienced a loss a mustard seed. And she goes out into the village and she comes back, of course, empty-handed. And the point of that story is not to diminish the severity of her grief, but to speak to the universal experience that is available to us. And I find comfort in that universal experience. For example, I was just relieved that rather than talking directly about the book, the first thing you wanted to talk about was the pandemic. Even though there's a part of my mind that says, I don't even want to think about it anymore. But I was relieved because it meant that I didn't have to pretend that that's not top of mind. And I see from your smile and from your nodding that it's top of mind for you. I think in, in some sense, um, there's been sort of this overwhelming feeling over the last month and a half of like, does anything else even matter? There's people who are sort of have the frame of, oh, the earth is healing and it's all positive and, and all of these different things. Or there's like the opposite, which is like everything's like going to end. And I don't know which is right, but I think ignoring it doesn't make sense because it is, it is everywhere around us and it is what, what's happening. You step out of the house, it's there. Well, I think, I think the impulse to ignore is an understandable impulse. I mean, when, when one examines and looks at this experience for the stages of grief, denial is one of the stages of grief. And I think that there is that experience. I think overwhelming obsession is also an experience. It's part of that depressive stance. I guess I'm in the category of, I know that the world will not end. But I know that most of the things that we have, 
take as representatives of the world, the institutions, the processes, the way we interact with one another, those will, if not end, be dramatically transformed. It's already happened. And in my better moments, I can reach into a profound sense of optimism. But that optimism lands false if I don't simultaneously hold on to the realism of where we are. And I would argue, going back to that universality of the feelings, the medicine that is compassion. If one is to deny all of the experiences, then one denies oneself the opportunity to feel empathetic. And I think that among the many things that the pandemic is teaching us, it's the need for compassion, even for those with whom we disagree. And that, if we can step into that place, when I step into that place, I feel a little bit of relief from the overwhelm, from the sadness. And I get past, I begin to get past the grief. I think, I think one thing that you mentioned that was, that's so important is sort of like the compassion for people who we disagree with. I think you shared this too, like there's all this happening right now where like there's people who are like, oh, this is all false. We should be outside. And then there's photos of doctors literally like being in their way and, and being like, no, go home. Right. And there's, it almost sort of like leads to that like anger. Um, and I know you talk about that a lot in your book, the Hulk mm. versus Thor, of mm. just how to sort of Hulk and it's Thor. Hulk. And Thor. <laughs> so, so maybe with the, with the context of your story, sort of like Hulk and Thor and, and what you've talked about in the book, can you share like how people can navigate when those feelings come up, especially in the sense, like, I think one of the things that I've noticed is, at least for me and friends, everything, every emotion during this is heightened. Is, yes. Is like, it's so much larger. Yeah. The way I, I've been describing it is that my resources are thin. And I think many folks that I, I've spoken to share similar feelings, which is that we feel easily provoked. And while I'm not a neurologist, I'll bet that neurologists will generally agree that as a consequence of living with what I was referring to before is those two stages of anxiety, the individual anxiety and the collective anxiety, the collective anxiety being I might feel better in the moment and then I start talking to someone else and I start to lose that sense of well-being again. Or I start to just collectively feel what's going on and start to lose it in that sense. And I think that neurologically what happens is that the amygdala takes over. And I think what we're all experiencing is probably a greater degree of amygdala hijack, which is when our post-evolution brain systems get overridden by our pre-evolutionary brain system. And that pre-evolutionary brain system is designed to see everything as a threat, including your emotional state. And so it's quite logical that we're feeling that sense of thinness, that sense of the highs are particularly, or the intense feelings are particularly intense, and perhaps the low feelings are particularly low. That's sort of, uh, it's kind of how the systems are designed. And I think that it makes sense that we're experiencing that right now. And how does one navigate that? And as a context, like, I think one of the questions that for me um, came up through like reading the book was, and you've talked about this a lot, which is how when we sort of like discover these stories of our mm -hmm. childhood, right? And um, there's this idea that we were wounded by certain people and, and family. And, and right, especially right now, people are home with their family. Once you start discovering the stories, like almost like what do you do with them or, or how do you, 
deal with them or having like like tools to kind of like do something with them? I know that's a general question. In, in no, it, 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 it's actually a two-part question because the mm-hmm. first part is really around what I would refer to as a roller coaster experience. And then the second part is a very profound question, which is once you discover those stories, what do you do with them? So I'm going to take them in two different pieces for a moment. One of the things that um, I have found helpful in whether it's uh, one-on-one conversations or large gatherings is to recall for folks a bit from my book around the opening of chapter eight, in which I talk about our universal wish for uh, what I would define as equanimity, is the sense that we're okay, that the world is going through a pandemic and that it's painful and it's hurtful and we're scared, but at the same time, we're okay. And what I believe to be true is that the ability to get to that place of equanimity depends in a sense or begins with the experience of having our hearts broken. And that's right. And then we have the experience of trying to develop the capacity known as resilience, the ability to take a punch. And I make the point that the whole point of riding the roller coaster isn't to get better at riding roller coasters. The point is to be able to not board the roller coaster in the first place. And what I meant by that is especially needed right now. It's the ability to distance one existential self from the thing that is happening, to be able to discern what's a true threat from what's a false threat. And right now, our systems are so hijacked that everything Mm -hmm. feels like a threat, which means that most of what we're perceiving as threatening is in fact false, thus leading to all this anxiety. So the real task is to be able to sort of step back and say, well, what's really at risk? Am I safe right now? And right now I look at you across the video screen, I look at myself across the video screen, and we're reasonably safe. We're okay. I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but right now in this moment, I'm safe. The second piece, so that's thing one. Thing two, when you start to unpack your stories, what do you do with them? Well, I'll give you an image, and I work with this image a little bit in the book, and it, comes, it came to me from reading Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run, in which he talks about all of us having unsorted baggage in our life, and that the longer we go through our life without doing the sorting, the higher the price we pay, and that the currency that will pay that price is in tears, is in suffering. And... That's a call to do the sorting. So what you're really asking is, what do you do once you begin to realize that you have a whole bunch of unsorted baggage? Well, the first thing you do is you start to put it into categories. You start to sort it out. You take all the stuff from the top of the closet where you shove hats and gloves and things that you don't really want to deal with. And you lay them all out and you sort them into categories. And then you put them back. And that's really what you're asking is, what do you do? Well, you put it back, but you put it back in such a way that you know what it is. So let me get more specific. Let's imagine for for a moment that you grew up with a belief system that your value as a person was dependent solely on your good grades. You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Partly, yes, yes. Yeah. So there's a, and then perhaps value as a person might be too 
great a phrase, but close to it. And it can begin with, with a very loving, non-intendedly wounding expression by parents who want nothing but the best for our children. And it kind of goes like this. Congratulations on that 100 on the spelling test. And boy, doesn't that feel good. And it feels good on both sides of that equation. Mm -hmm. And yet, outside of that experience, the child might start to wonder because there isn't a constancy or a consistency around the sense of love that they almost addictively become focused on getting the next hundred on the spelling test and the next hundred on the spelling test until that becomes a very confining way of being. And the confusing part of that is that a lot of good things come from holding that belief system. We do get the A's. We do end up in the good schools. We do end up being well-educated. And we do oftentimes end up in a good job. And so then we end up in that place of safety. So there's a lot of benefit to that. The problem is that the intrinsic sense of self has never really been tested or strengthened. And the entire sense of self-worth starts to be tied up with external events. Now, let's, let's make this pandemic related. Then we have a cataclysmic event happen. We lose a job through no fault of our own. Someone gets sick and they die. The world catches fire in some way. Just recall last fall, we were dealing with Australia burning and before the, the Amazon. So these things happen and we become fixated on believing that somehow this is either a punishment for me or uh, somehow it's an expression of my failure. And so what we then do is for all of the very real world suffering, we then layer on this additional suffering what the Buddha would call dukkha, a kind of existential suffering, not the pain of a broken arm, but the pain of a broken heart. When you begin to sort these things and you start to see the belief system for what it is, and you're starting to see that, you then start to say to yourself, really, am I only lovable if I can get an A? And is that how I want to be? Is that how I want to the people? Is that how I, how I want the people I love? to feel about themselves, that doesn't seem right. Now, we want to hold ourselves to high standards of performance because there's a value in the craft, but we want to release ourselves from the belief system that we're only worthy if we can walk home and stick an A on the refrigerator door with a little magnet that says, what a good boy such it is. Does that make sense? It does. I'm smiling because um, forget one of the interviews that you did. Um... I think you said something along the lines of, I promise not to coach you because I know that's your instinct. And, and this is what you said feels very true for me. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that. The question that comes to mind for me is, so once you let's like have like an intellectual awareness of that, right? How do you get to real transformation or change or, or, or just, or start embodying that? Or... Right. So this is where I think um, tools and systems like meditation can be really helpful. One of the things that meditation helps us do is to, is to learn to stand back from our minds mm -hmm. and to watch our minds at work. Now, just what I said by itself is radical because mm -hmm. we so identify with our mind that to, to inculcate the notion that we can stand back from our mind and watch our mind work becomes a really powerful image, somewhat philosophically difficult mm -hmm. because then who's the eye that's watching the mind, but leave that to the side. Imagine yourself as, the, as that watcher 
by using that as a practice, when we get caught up in the consequence of these belief systems, that's when we get to stand back and say, look at Jerry, he's all caught up in that belief system. What would it be like if that guy, Jerry, didn't, wasn't caught in that belief system anymore? Or is that belief system useful? Or is it true? And that creates a gap in the experience. And as the thought wrongly attributed to Viktor Frankl so often, but more likely attributed to Stephen Covey, between stimulus and response is a gap, and in that gap is our freedom. And the goal is to widen that gap to the point where we're able to see the feeling arise. I'm nothing without that A, without actually believing that notion. And then we release ourselves from its grip. The goal is to get to a point where we're really on a regular basis able to release ourselves from the grip of those sorts of notions that arise in us all the time. So really sort of like creating that separation between the That's right. thought and the action. That's right. That's right. And one of my teachers, Trump or Yuri Pichet, used to call it the dot. And what you want to do is widen the dot, that spot between that first impulsive feeling and the story that starts mm-hmm. to arise from that. And the more you widen that gap, the more you widen that dot, you are then able to allow the rest of your mind to take over and, and say things like, well, does this thought serve me? And how does it serve me? And could the benefit that I get from that thought be derived from some other activity that doesn't make me feel so bad? I'm just taking that in. That was mm-hmm. that was beautiful. One of the other things that it sort of figuring out those stories brought up for me and, and friends I know was in a sense that if you if you look at like relationships, right? Like relationships almost crystallize identities where people want you based on sort of like who you are and who they are, that's your identity. And as you start experiencing transformation and change, how do you when you work with clients, like help them navigate that? especially if they're undergoing rapid transformation. Navigate the impact on their relationships. Mm-hmm. Because in some ways, people maybe want you to be who you were or, or be in that same role. So I will follow my first instinct, which was when I heard you design the premise of the question, and I winced a little bit inside. Because what I heard you say, and I could be wrong in my interpretation, mm-hmm. what I heard you say was that we as ourselves are defined by our relationships. And I think that that's a problematic construct. I believe that you're right, that for many people that is true, that we are defining ourselves almost like a triangulation in which we cannot fix our point on the map without taking three different points and shooting the stars with a, with a sextant, mm-hmm. right? without understanding where we are in order to fix a position of who we are. The challenge with that is, of course, what the other person's doing the same thing. Right. And that is even further complicated by the fact that each human is a dynamic, ever-changing mm-hmm. being. And so the definition of self that is reliant upon the relationship with the other becomes really problematic to sustain. It's probably more helpful to start inward and say to oneself, well, who am I independent of these relationships? 
And then therefore, how do these relationships influence, excuse me, my belief systems about mm -hmm. myself, influence how I view the world, influence how I experience the world. That feels like it's the proper order. And quite frankly, it places less of a burden on the other than that original construct. Because if you are relying upon me to help you define who you are, well, good luck. Because my experience of me is constantly shifting. And so I will always disappoint you in that regard. But I think if you can find a, self, a solid sense of self, especially around your values and your aspirations, and then react from there, you'll be in a much stronger state. I think you sort of beautifully caught that because I think one of the things that I did learn from Reboot was sort of this idea of defining self from others and, and starting mm. to change that. Right. It's a natural and understandable impulse. I mean, it begins even as a child, as a baby, when our physical safety is dependent upon whether or not our smile is met by a caregiver. And mm -hmm. so a baby will look up and smile and send all these positive oxytocin-inducing feelings in the caregiver in order to make sure that the, that baby stays alive. That's a very, very wise evolutionary system. It also begins to create a powerful bond between the baby and the adult, which is more than just physical safety. It's existential safety. It's, it's, it's a sense of well-being that the child can start to grow up with. But part of the development process for all humans is individuation. Who am I independent of that person? And when individuation is thwarted, as is often the case for folks who, who are challenged, then we end up being too dependent upon others for our sense of self-esteem. And I guess like once you, maybe that's circling back to the original question, like once you start seeing all of that, what does the transformation look like? And maybe it is what you said, it is sort of that practice of widening that gap. It's a slow and steady process. It's not a light switch that all of a sudden gets thrown and everything is different. It's a, uh, I often will, will say to a client, it's two steps forward, one step back, three mm -hmm. steps forward, two steps back, one step forward, two <laughs> step back. It's a process and it's a movement. As I said in the book, it's like tacking across the surface of the lake. It's a zigzag movement. And that transformation itself, when, when you can relax the view of what that transformation should look like and should feel like, when you can relax that and realize that some days you're going to feel like you made progress and some days you're going to feel like you're taking a step backwards, then the experience of the transformation is, doesn't, isn't something that needs to be rushed, isn't something, it doesn't, part of the, the, the difficulty of even the language that we're both using right now is to see transformation as a kind of one and done experience. When I would argue that what well, the clearest example of the transformation is growth and growth happens every day. Every day mm -hmm. we're moving incrementally correct with directionally correct with incremental progress, right? We're moving in a particular direction. And that feels like a good day. When there's visible experience of growth, that's a good day. Even though the growth itself and the transformation inherent is painful. It's still a good day. I think it relates to sort of what you talked about. I think in that same chapter with wanting the hockey stick up and to the right growth. That's right. Because that's, that's what right. we're all, all so used to and want. 
That's right. That's right. And we're organized to pursue that, that up and to the mm-hmm. right attitude. So much of our consumer society is built around the notion, that notion that up and to the right is where all the happy people are, mm-hmm. right? And implicit in that belief system is that there's something wrong with you folks, me and I, all of us who are down into the left. Then, well, there's nothing wrong with us. It's just where we are. But once we start to see that the, that path is not only not up and to the right, but in fact, the experience of life, then we can relax into, oh, did this bring me joy? Does this make me feel alive? And if it does not make me feel alive, why am I doing this? Oh, okay, I'm learning that skill. Okay, got it. All right, I'm just doing it because I'm seeking somebody's external approbation. Mm-hmm. And that's a dangerous place. And one of the things that um, I would love for you to expand on that you talk about in the book is, is sort of the being the busy wonder kid and the, and the chase for lemon drops in the context of your story. Because I think it's so common in, in, if you look at like the startup and the creator world where we're all going for goals and just busy, 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 striving, 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 and sort of just white knuckling through it. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the pandemic for a moment. I think one of the things that many folks that I've talked to have been experiencing is a slowing down, is an enforced slowing down. And leave aside for a moment all of the challenging feelings that that brings up in and of itself. There are many people who are speaking about, writing about, interacting about the benefit of that. Suddenly, fear of missing out, FOMO, isn't really quite a thing anymore because there's nothing to miss out on. And there's nobody who's having a better time than you. I'm laughing because I just had a conversation with a friend the other day about the FOMO of almost not being invited to a Zoom happy hour. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, see, there's your mind trying to find something to feel shitty about. <laughs> if, if you participated in Zoom happy hours, you know that they're kind of miserable. I agree. I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but there is an opportunity in this mm-hmm. time period to re-examine a lot of our priorities, a lot of our values, a lot of what defines us. Mm-hmm. as a person. And it's that slowness that creates the opportunity for the growth. But I lost track of where we were because I got fixated on the happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we were talking about sort of the um, the sort of like busy, busy attitude of wanting to achieve yeah. more and more and yeah. the chase for the lemon drops and, and how- And lemon works. drops, right. So lemon drops, as you recall from the book, is really a metaphor taken from the experience of visiting my the safety of my grandparents' home, mm-hmm. in which it, it felt like they always had enough and we didn't necessarily have enough. And so I began to associate having a lot of lemon drops with having enough safety. And the pursuit, the busyness that we often fill our lives with is in some ways like the pursuit of lemon drops. It's not necessarily for the safety of money but it might be for the safety of status, or it might be for the safety of external approbation. And there is an opportunity, just like, you know, at the end of this month, you might revisit your budget and and realize that you have not spent what you would normally spend on things like Mm -hmm. going out, but instead have spent more money, say, on groceries, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's making that, that comment. And so there is an opportunity at during this period to sort of take another inventory, a different kind of inventory and say, do I really, you know, what was the benefit to me of being as busy as I felt that I was? Mm -hmm. Am I still that busy? 
have I replaced all the activity with Zoom calls? I did mm-hmm. 13 hours of Zoom calls on Wednesday talking to clients. And uh, you know, the next day, I, I had a good three-hour break in the middle of the day to sort of gather my, myself a little bit better. There's an opportunity in all of that to use this time period to re-examine our relationship with both the pursuit of money and the pursuit of stats, which is implicit in that question. And I'm curious, like, what if the response, like, what does it say if the response has been almost, like you said, like creating more Zoom calls or, or creating more busyness? What do I say to that? What do you mean? In the sense that, like, and I'm still forming this question because this is sort of raw, mm-hmm. and I, I started realizing this as I was prepping for this where a few friends and I, as we saw this happen, we're like, okay, what can we do? And we started this project to basically like start highlighting artists called Love Spreads and, and highlighting their work with this framework of like Love Spreads Faster Than a Virus. And I think it was yesterday where I realized I'm like, am I creating just more busyness for myself mm-hmm. through doing that? Um, and what did you say to yourself in response to the question? I said, I'm going to ask Jerry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I wasn't sure what the answer was there. Well, what occurs to me is, to, is um, to share my own experience. When the need for the lockdown became unavoidably evident, mm-hmm. when it became clear of what did it mean to really be living in a pandemic, not from an epidemiologist perspective or the doctors who were warning us in January and February, but from an everyday person's perspective, one of my responses was to get busy. And I got really busy. And I was everywhere. I was helping and I did lots and lots of podcast conversations. I did media interviews. I did a lot of online gatherings. And I realized about midweek last week that the adrenaline that had been driving me had begun to wear down. And that my initial response was not unlike a Dalmatian answering a call at a fire station. Oh, you know, the bells go off, the dog starts barking hops in the back of a truck and goes off with the firefighters. That's what it felt like I was doing. Now I began shifting into saying, well, what is my work to be done, right? Which is very different than I have to do everything or I have to be everywhere. I have to be useful, which was an initial impulse. Now, I don't know that that was behind your impulse for Mm -hmm. your artist project, but I've heard of a lot of projects starting in a similar way. And without critiquing any of the projects, I think that as time wears on, we'll see what really is an expression of someone's work to do. Now, that said, uh, your project sounds fascinating and it sounds wonderful and it sounds healing. So that's good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's sort of hard to, and I think like this, this was sort of another thing that came up, which is like, when you start seeing sort of like these different parts of yourself or different projects, how do you know where the intention is coming from. So what you keep going. Is it actually coming from maybe like the the fear-based part of you that is an earlier part of you? Or is it more coming from that feeling of like feeling love and safe and belonging? Right. Of course, there's no single answer to to that question. I think the process question that you asked is really the more important question, which is how does one tell? And I think that one tells by asking oneself questions. How would I feel if this project did not go forward? What was I feeling when I thought of this project? What was the last set of conversations I had? Because a lot of that stuff will stick with us. You might have a conversation with someone 
that triggers an old internal belief system. And then what feels like a random thought pops into your head, but is in fact quite linked to the experience of what's going on. And the random thought might be, I'm going to put together a web-based project that's going to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And we can step too quickly into the pragmatic doing and lose connection to those original feeling thoughts that arose. And those feeling thoughts need attention. They need attending to. Because if they're not attended to, the work that you respond to them by doing, the thing you create, will its satisfaction will peter out over time. And the result is you'll find yourself trapped doing something that felt at one point really, really important, but then has become perhaps a dreadful obligation, as the poet David White would say. And that's not the way we want to live our lives, discharging dreadful obligations. That's kind of miserable. We can discharge obligations that are beautiful and uplifting, Mm -hmm. but that's not dreadful. And I think one of the stories sort of in this context of like forks in the road that you share in the book is when you went to JP Morgan. So can you share that story sort of in that context of when you're sort of at those forks in the road, how do you sort of go through and travel through those? Well, what specifically are you thinking about in terms of the decision to join JP Morgan? In terms of realizing when you're doing something, maybe for the validation or maybe sort of if it's your calling and how you navigated that? Well, I wasn't in touch enough with my own internal systems to know why I was agreeing to join JP Morgan when I did, which was early fall 2001. But within months, it became quickly apparent that the decision was the wrong decision for me. And by months, I mean by January, right? So I joined in officially in September of 2001 and by January of 2002, I was miserable enough to know that I wasn't long for that position. And by February, March, I began making plans to not re-up my contract at the end of that year. I worked through the end of my contract, but it became clear very quickly. And the clearest signal was just how depressed I was. In hindsight, the depression wasn't just because I was in the wrong job or the wrong company. The depression was a part and parcel of me that had been ignored too long. And the thing about the new job was it kind of got in the way of me being able to properly process what I was feeling. And there's a line in Parker Palmer's book, he talks about his own experiences of depression. And uh, he tells a story of going to see a therapist who asked him to reimagine his depression, not as the hand of an enemy trying to strike him down, but as the hand of a friend, trying to get him to sit still and look at his life. And that metaphor uh, was super powerful for me because it made me realize that the depression was telling me something. It was telling me that I was ignoring some really important questions in my life, questions that I'd personally rather not have to answer. But if I didn't answer those questions, then the depression was going to get worse. And so I had to lean into the pain of actually looking at those questions rather than avoid them and get busy. And I think the, the book you mentioned, um, That Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer, was uh, such a blessing. I think what, what else, um, sort of you're coming towards the end of the hour, uh, hour um, hmm. what else would you share with people who are, who are as tools or 
guides as they're sort of like navigating the pandemic and, and what's going on? Well, I think that the, the, the main thing is to really see what the pandemic is calling us to do. And, you know, there's two images that I hold on to. One comes from my Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron, in which in a passage in a wonderful book called Comfortable with Uncertainty, she talks about the fact that, that a lot of our suffering stems from the fact that we believe ourselves to be solid and not fluid. And she says that we're like the weather, always changing, always shifting. And that the call in times of uncertainty is to sit like a mountain in the hurricane which is a powerful, powerful image. And it's incredibly helpful. And as I shared that time and time again, one of the things that came up for me was a realization of just how hard it is to sit like a mountain in a hurricane. And part of what makes it so hard is that the impulse is to sit with a kind of false grit. And in the book, I make a distinction between false grit and true grit. And false grit is the belief system that one should stick to one's guns, regardless of the data that is presenting itself. And so, for example, the folks who, in a pandemic, say, we are going to open the economy on such and such date, only to be told by the wise man, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Mm, the pandemic's not going to work on your, the virus is not going to pay attention to your time. There's a true grit in what Fauci is saying there, which is he's persistent. He's persistently focused on helping lead the fight, but he allows the data to come in. There's a, there's a non-delusional, flexible nature to what he's doing. And that's worth recalling. Because our impulse right now is to sort of lean in and be fixated on things, especially when we find ourselves thinly resourced. And the greater call is to relax into what's actually happening and realizing that there's very, very little over which we have control except our emotional experience. So those are some things to recall during this time. And last question, and this is sort of a rhetorical question, because as you rightly pointed out earlier, that sometimes it's like easy to view the transformation maybe like as the end goal, right? So, so I'll ask the question and in that context, it probably isn't even framed right, which is as someone reads Reboot and, and sort of goes through the process, what is the end game or how do you measure the success or at the end? So you see the A you're looking for? The A? Yeah, you're looking for the grade. How do I know that I've succeeded? So you're asking the wrong person, right? Mm-hmm. Because true personal transformation isn't measured by how I view you. It's Mm -hmm. measured by how you view you. And so, again, I won't give you the answer, but I will point out the process. The process is to be able to check yourself and say, at the end of the day, can I put my head down on the pillow and say, not a bad day? And do I do that more often than not? And when I think about, and so I ask a lot of questions in the book, I ask a lot of questions of clients, questions that are designed to provoke that kind of introspection. Here's one that might be appropriate. If I were to have a child and that child were living my life, how would I feel about the life that I taught them to lead? And if I have questions about that, then perhaps there's some work to be done. But if I feel my way into that and my body relaxes, as I visualize, my child living a life that is similar to mine, and that feels good, then maybe I did something right. So 
I understand I'm a big proponent of intrinsic motivation, but if you're going to look to extrinsic motivation, I'm going to have you work with that and say, look at things like when your child is a parent and they're describing you, how would you like them to describe you? Well, you have to be that person today. Or 20 years from now, when an employee has left you and is the CEO of their own company, how would you like them to define and talk about their experience having worked for you? And if you don't feel comfortable imagining them doing that, then there's probably some work to be done. That might be the perfect place to end it is sort of using this opportunity to switch from the extrinsic to the intrinsic. That's it. That's Mm -hmm. right. Thank you so much for doing this, Jerry. Um, The book is Reboot and we'll have everything linked up. Thank you. Thank you. It was a delight to see you and a delight to be with you. Delight to see you too. Hey, it's Sachit again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.